I want you to think back. It's 1997 and you're about to go on your first tour, playing your music in front of people in different towns and different states for the very first time. But there's this record that's been bugging you. It's by a band you've just discovered and apparently it came out last year, but nobody you know has heard it. Well, you think if it's out there, maybe this is going to be a good way to find it out on the road, out there where all the possibility is. Hi, I'm Gordon Mokes and this is a new podcast called Exploded Drawing. On each episode, I'm going to sit down with a musician, or if not a musician, someone else equally invested in music, and we're going to talk about one particular record from the 1990s that's important to them, and that maybe carries a story with it. So for this first episode, I had a little chat with my friend Andrew Kenny, singer in American Analog Set and Wooden Birds, about The Mysterious Tiger Milk by Bell and Sebastian from 1996. Right, I'm here with Kenny, and we are going to tackle the subject of Tiger Milk. It's something of a mythical creature, this first record by Ben and Sebastian, because uh, it didn't come out properly for a few years. Their first record that the world knew about, or certainly the world who were interested in, in Ben and Sebastian, was If You're Feeling Sinister. But at that time, there was talk of a record that had appeared or been created before If You're Feeling Sinister. So we're talking what year? About 96, 97? So I think this would... I heard If You're Feeling Sinister for the first time, I want to say it was in the spring of 1997. Mm -hmm. Because uh, just looking back and uh, who played it for for me, which is my friend Lee, and uh, he was also my roommate, and also your bandmate? And also my bandmate. He was the, uh, or is the bass player in the analog set. And he played it for me. I heard a lot of music that I liked at that time from Lee. And right. he had a knack for uh, finding things that, that, well, he looked for music for himself. But mm-hmm. when he heard something that he thought I would go crazy for, he, uh, he was always quick to share it with me. Would you say that you had the two of you similar tastes or did you have like a spectrum of tastes but he just could identify where you were on that? I think it's more the second one. I mean we were in a band together so mm. I'd like to think that we had of course. a lot more in common musically but he, uh, I'd say his interests are just a lot broader than mine mm-hmm. and so he would hear something and say oh I think Kenny's really going to like this, mm-hmm. he'd play it for me, make me a mixtape or he'd play it in his car or something like that. And this was presumably a mixture of, of British and American music probably predominantly because that's if I look back to that time myself it would have been you know probably half and half over here I'd imagine it was seeking out the the range required a lot more than just a good radio station needed <laughs> to have um, the the music papers from the UK we had access to them there was a, a record store chain here called Tower Records and there was one right on the drag by campus and uh, And this is we're talking about Austin Texas yes right across the street from campus at the UT and uh, Mark our drummer worked at Tower at the time so he uh, you know when they we wouldn't get the papers right when they came out yeah because for me that was that was a ritual of, of living in Britain at the time that was Wednesday morning straight down to the 
to the newsagent and grabbing it off the shelf as soon as you saw it. Mm-hmm. But there was probably a little delay, right, for those... those. I don't remember it being too long, but yeah, I, it wasn't the same day. But I'm interested how that felt to buy the British music papers, unedited, I imagine. You know, all the adverts are aimed at, at the, the British audience. All the gigs in the back are, are listings from, from, you know, Doncaster and... and uh, Bath and Reading and all these places that you were presumably had never heard of until you kind of opened them up and gone, oh, this is where <clears> bands <throat> play in the UK. So everything's sort of framed at the British audience. I wondered how that, if that gave you a, a, a kind of world view at that time or you just sort of took it for granted because it's, it's just another way of finding that music. Well, by that time, we had been mining that territory uh, for years yes, because... What brought me and Mark and Lee together, I'd say the Stone Roses, it goes back that far. And so we had been looking for those papers to read about uh, Ride and Lush and the Pale Saints. And then a little bit later, it was Verve and mm-hmm. and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. So by the time Bell and Sebastian came around, we had a little bit of different of a, a different frame of reference mm-hmm. because we had just started making and releasing records. So we didn't consider ourselves as colleagues by any means, but... We had an outlet for um, our interest in music that wasn't strictly as a consumer. Anyway, yeah, we would get the papers and, and read about them, but I don't remember how we knew about Tiger Mill. We didn't know the name initially, mm. so we must not have read about it. It must just have been rumors. But um, we kind of set out to find it, and we knew that it had, if it was released, it only had a, you know, a couple hundred copies or whatever it was. Right. I think now... It's a thousand. Copies. It was a thousand. Yeah. Having read up a little bit, it was a thousand copies that they put out initially. As far as you knew, it was a record that was out there that you. It you, was a record. It was. But a presumably, collection of demo tapes, something. It was you just, obviously loved if you're feeling sinister that much that you felt whatever it is, it's got to be good. I mean, I I was at that age. You know, I I would refer to myself as a completist. I wanted to have everything that a band put out. Just to trace what their their whole what their their arc output, was or is you output know. was yeah so I mean I wonder if if the fact that it was kind of mythical oh sure that it, drew it drew us to it yeah uh, of course fed the the the, the uh, need to hear it more than mm-hmm. anything also at that time we were you know we were in the shops enough that to fall in love with a band and then find out they had older material yep. was unusual. Okay. So it was like hearing a record that you love and not waiting a year to hear the next one. We got to hear, you know, the, the previous one. That was very unusual for okay. us Okay, so do you think that there was a, an element of seeing it as a challenge that we can find everything bands put out? What's this record that supposedly you can't get hold of? I'm not going to uh, stand for this. There's, I'm determined to find this thing. Yeah, I would say it was... It was the holy grail of their... It was the grail for us, We, at least for the time. You know, I, yeah, I hadn't, at that point, I didn't have a record that I was absolutely, you know, if it wasn't at 33 Degrees or Waterloo, you know, and they didn't know how to get it, and so then we weren't going to get it either. Yeah. So, yeah. so we had to start asking around. Yeah. So you were touring, and when did you actually first hear some of this record? I think... It was in Florida, okay. and we. It was the first week, the first leg of our very first tour, which is a special time for any band. 
um, we have been talking to uh, you know just people that you meet at the merch desk and and someone mentioned oh I have a copy of, of the album and he offered us a place to stay and uh, I don't remember if he necessarily was selling us the place to stay as much as he was selling us the his copy of the record so um, when we got to his house it was just it was a cassette that had been yeah. dubbed you know one two five eight times okay and pretty muffled sounding it would have been it was a little muffled but I think it kind of it kind of fit like the, yeah. the whole rec- you know their earlier recordings are a little a little squashed Wouldn't sounding have, yeah it would not have uh, denigrated the uh, the appeal at all we may have even added to it I, I think it probably added to it so <laughs> so he gave us the first five songs which is all he had and we didn't know if that was half the record if that was just missing the last song or what it was but um, we had the state that I'm in through uh, the electronic renaissance yeah so we're talking the first five tracks and you you knew that this wasn't the whole record but you weren't sure how many tracks were missing correct he told us there was more <laughs> but... this is almost like a some kind of uh it's like the 39 steps or um, some kind of treasure hunt, a jigsaw puzzle that it, there's, there's missing pieces. It's like, I'm passing my piece of the, uh, the necklace, you have to go and find the other parts. My work is done, it is to I, you to find the rest that's out there. I think that's a great uh, analogy because in the end, having the first half of the necklace enabled us to find the second half of the necklace oh it really <laughs> so we're we're talking about the first five tracks which um ending with electronic renaissance this is all you knew of the record uh and for a while you were that's all you had you were you were out on tour and you were playing it we in the van playing, uh, sure definitely every day in the van a couple of times and we would take it in with us to uh into a venue and and play it uh over set changes Okay, and so it was almost like a walk-on. It was. It didn't always... Um, it didn't... Sometimes the set change was long enough that uh, whatever was after Bell and Sebastian on the mixtape uh, started to play, but um, we worked on our set change so we could get on stage by by the time of electronic renaissance yeah. play. <laughs> <laughs> and bang, and you're off. So you became the second half of the record in that scenario. In that scenario, like, we were, yeah. Channeling but, um, what, what might come next. But having that uh, playing and had the fact that they had a very identifiable sound, uh, it brought people to us that, mm. that would ask, oh, I, is that a new EP or is that Tiger Milk? I've been hearing about it. And we could say some people in Florida gave it to us. Or, mm. But it, then, sound, it sounds to me like maybe not consciously there's a chance that there might be somebody out there who would recognize it and have the other half of it, right? Well, we weren't thinking about it in those terms, no. but in the end, that's what happened. So we... Before we hear the story of the second half of the record, um, let's play a track from the first half. I want to hear Expectations. Okay.
the headset that you always wear a queer one from the start. For careers you say you wanna be remembered for your art. Your obsession gets you known throughout the school for being strange, making life-size models of the velvet underground in play. In the queue for lunch they take the piss. You got no appetite, and the rumor is you never go with boys and you are tight. So they trap you with a fork, you drop the tray and go berserk While you're cleaning up the mess, the teacher's looking up your scar Hey, you've been used Are you calm, settle down Write a song, I'll sing along Soon you will know that you are sane You're on top of the world again the trumpet parts and how they're reminiscent of, of Love's Alone Again or... To me, it, um, when I was listening through the record, I, I made a note about expectations, the way it shifts from the major to the minor, which is something that they do on Stars of Track and Field, which is one of their biggest songs from that time. And right. I think Love must do that in Alone Again or going from like the major to the minor or vice versa. And I think that's one of the things for me that, that makes Ben and Sebastian above the rest of the, the pack in terms of the, the kind of sophistication in the songwriting that's subtle. They're doing things with chords that, that bands that do this sort of stuff, I don't think necessarily do or did with such ease. I mean, it, there's no... It sounds effortless. Yeah, there's no... You don't, for sure. People like you and me who are kind of geeks about this stuff probably hear that straight away, or maybe it's just me. No, I, I mean, I like it for that reason. I have 
never, you know, sat down with the the scalpel and really tried to take apart a Bell and Sebastian song. I, but I can tell you that I, I, it's obvious to me that it's not, you know, three chords yeah. and a melodica. We were just saying that the success of of it is that lightness of touch in 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 the rhythm section, in you know, in a band really staying out of the way of the song because those songs were fully formed in lots of ways, but if this was just Stuart and his guitar or him and a piano, wouldn't have the same impact. It wouldn't clutch into your heart kind of in the same way. I mean, it just would have been for a different person, I think. I mean, Mm. he's a talented guy, talented songwriter, but for me, it's the 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 whole enchilada that really that really grabs me. Yeah. I don't know if it would be the same for me if it was just him and a guitar. But that was not something he intended to do. I think a lot of the early Bell and Sebastian stuff, if not all of it, comes from this kind of imaginary world of songwriting. That he named the band Bell and Sebastian. He imagined it as a duo, mm-hmm. a, a boy and a girl singing these songs together. So from from the outset, he saw it as something that was outside of himself. I think. Do you do you think that he had the 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 vision for the complete sound before as he was putting the band together, or do you feel I, like he he more took good advantage of the abilities of the people that he was had available to play with? I think probably a bit of both, right? I think any any good musician has to be a good collaborator, or or, or certainly if you have any ambitions to collaborate, I think you've got to be able to kind of enjoy the the happenstance of, of that. What's what are the accidents of meeting people and 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 just letting the strengths of that come through mm-hmm. rather than dictating what they should be. Yeah, I think he probably walked that line, whether it was conscious or not. I, I don't think it was, but I, I think he walked that line. Uh, you know, of course there's always a bit of luck involved sure. you know, finding the right people, yeah. but it's not surprising to me that he in the process of putting together a band, it's not surprising to me that he wasn't just like a singer-songwriter frontman. It doesn't seem like his, no, I, don't, I don't know him, but uh, if I can know him through his music, he doesn't seem like he needs to be the center of attention in order to, to tell a good story. Like he doesn't need to, um, the act of telling a story isn't, doesn't need to feature him as the storyteller, it's more. Yeah, I think uh, for me, probably hit on what the success of the band is full stop, is, is somebody who is open to where it goes and and can guide it. A good collaborator knows when to step back and and let other people just shine, do their thing. Yeah, it's not like you hear the bare bones of what this band can be, and then it's production that turns them into a better band. You hear the whole package on this sure. record. We hear the horns and the mm-hmm. strings and and the way the guitars interact. I think the interesting thing is that texture is all there from their very early recordings and it's a real thing that was in place almost from the off somehow. I kind of, when I listen now to Tiger Milk and then If You're Feeling Sinister, I kind of feel like it's not that Tiger Milk is more scattered, but I think Stuart taught the band one step at a time, one person at a time, how to how to make Bell and Sebastian sound like Bell and Sebastian and then he learned what his songs do with this mm. sound, and then "If You're Feeling Sinister" happened very, very quickly after. It wasn't even a whole year, right? No, it was it was months. Um, was it really? Yeah, I mean, it's like a dress rehearsal almost, isn't it? Sure. For this 
documentary on on Pitchfork TV is 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 so far my best source in terms of discovering how the band really came together. I um, saw it, but but a long yeah. I saw it a couple of years ago. So the uh, the the nuts and bolts of this record is that it was one of the band were on a college course, music industry. 101 effectively mm-hmm. but as part of the course they'd started a label and they were putting out an EP once a year so each academic year whoever was on the course they worked together to find a local band a recording that they could use the skills they were le- learning on the course to create a market and put a record in the shops and this record was you know suggested I think it was Richard the drummer who was on the course Huh. He's saying, well, my friend Stuart's got these songs we've been working on. They play it to the the people on the course, and they're going, well, obviously we have to put this out. Okay. So that's how the record came about, and that's why it was recorded in two, sorry, three days and mixed in two. It was a learning experience for everyone, but in a self-contained package. I guess I, knew, I remember most of that, but not all of it. That's uh, If there's ever been a, a better example of of rehearsing before recording uh, and just how important that is like I, I don't know it like this is I mean that's the sound of the band they yeah. just they played most of it live right yes I even the so. even the vocals I think pretty much live mm. not sure with vocals or not well it sounds but it, it sounds great and I love that just there's a good amount of, of just room noise and tape hiss yeah. uh, you know when the record starts up it's it's really striking it's it's a gift really I think this record to people wanting to put out a record in that context I had a um, tutor when I was at college who said if you want to get into film there's a lot of work to do but there's a real good shortcut to it and that's just write Reservoir Dogs because that's what Quentin Tarantino had done. He had no background in writing film scripts. He just submitted the script, and as soon as it was seen, it was like, oh, well, this has to be made as a film. Huh. And I think you could argue that this this record was, was that, you know. If you want to get a record out, write a record this good, <clears throat> and it will come out. Kiss me 
discovered side two side b so side the second side of the record happened a few weeks or we found it a few weeks after the first we had been playing it uh, on tour as our changeover music and trying to you know keep things kind of tight and get on before the end of electric renaissance and uh because of their recognizable sound, because of the buzz and the interest that they were that they were generating, um, people would ask us like, "Hey, where did you get that? Is that another EP?" You know, we would say, "Oh, it's the first part of Tiger Milk. It's maybe the first side or the first couple of songs." And you know, eventually, someone came up and and mentioned that they had the whole thing. And and again, it was a dub. It was uh, right. not the album. Okay. It was. Uh, Do you remember where that was? I don't remember where it was, but I do remember that it must have been. We went up the East Coast, uh, across the top, and then, and then down the West Coast, and it was before we hit the West Coast, like uh, Ohio, just, Chicago, oh, somewhere, okay. somewhere up in the Upper Midwest. But I remember when we got the whole record, it was a, a bit, it was a better quality than the first. Uh, tape that we had. Okay, so, so it was a dub, but it was a better quality dub. Yes, much. Right. Um, it sounded. If it wasn't first generation, it was one or two. Okay. You know, it didn't. It didn't have that that staticky, squashed quality that the first one had, which I still own and listen to occasionally. Where, was it? Was that exciting, or was it? How was that to hear it sort of in a slightly more hi-fi way? Um, it didn't take anything yeah. away at all. I mean, we we kind of loved it so much anyway that we um, it didn't. Uh, distract or detract how was the how did the second half compare to the first half well I guess my first reaction was I don't I didn't like it as much as the first half the first time I heard it I like the whole record now but I do remember we listened to it once in the maybe a couple of times on the tape player in the van and then we decided um, everyone, I kind of wanted to have it on my headphones, and so did everyone else. So we kind of just passed it around. Okay. Um, and I remember my first time listening to it with the headphones was uh, crossing the Rockies, and I wasn't driving. And we maybe we were just past, we were right around Salt Lake City, having just gone through the Rockies, <laughs> and we were making our way to, uh, you know, to California, IA, and. <laughs> I remember looking out the window and being that a lot of this was written by someone who looked out of a bus window to write it and then looking out of a van window and watching this 
country that was part of my band name yeah. uh, that I had never seen before, like passed by my window. It was oh, really a special nice. thing. And then when he sings, you know, driving from California to New York, uh, I remember that moment, like, I remember where I was, what I was seeing. Wow. I mean, that's, that really, I realized like, okay, maybe I'll listen to this once again. Okay. And, and the, so the second time I listened to it, I liked it quite a bit more. But I'd heard that first side of the record so much. Yeah, we'd listen to it multiple times a day, every day. Nowadays, of course, if you were listening, if for whatever reason you only had half of the record in MP3 form, sure. and then you found the, the rest of it, you might skip to track six and just play from there, but presumably you didn't fast forward through the first bit, you just let it play, right? No, I didn't, yeah. I started uh, right at the top, I went all the way through, and I remember being a bit nervous, thinking, oh, this the next part of the record that I haven't heard before is about to begin, and I hope it's good. And it, <laughs> and it was, I just, it didn't, it didn't really strike me until, you know, until the lyrics got to me later on on the record. I know, we all know that Ben and Sebastian are from Glasgow. When I hear some of these lyrics, like for instance, you spot that thing that he's looking out of the bus window. I see the, the bus in Glasgow going through the rain, you know, in the mm. sort of grey streets of Glasgow. I can picture that place because I've been there. I was that guy looking out of a bus. You're talking about looking out over the, the American countryside. But then again, as you say, the line is don't fall asleep driving from California mm-hmm. to New York, which is which is a great line. So obviously he was wanting to invoke things that were more than just his own surroundings. I mean, I guess we, we all do this with all music. You don't, you're not imagining what the singer's seeing through his eyes when you listen to the, to the words. It's your experience that you project onto it. Was that a part of your experience of this record? Did you think there's something British in this or was that, that was well important? Yes, I mean, the, it is very it British, is. isn't it? I mean, I, it it, I listened to Bell and Sebastian, and I didn't know what Turning Tables Around and, and Marks and Spencer's, I didn't know what that, what Marks and Spencer's <laughs> was, or CNA. Like, I didn't know what any of these things were until I got to go there and and say, oh, well, that's a, just a department store. Um, let's listen to We Rule the School. Okay. We Rule the School. On a beach tree rudely carved And say, love me Why did she do it? Was she scared? Was she bored? On a beach tree rudely carved And say, love me Why did she do it? Was she scared? Was she pushed? Something pretty well you can Don't fall asleep Skating a pirouette on ice Is cool Do something pretty well you can Don't be a fool Reading the gospel to yourself Is fine 
I guess I just wanted to talk a bit about the vantage point of the songwriting, that this kind of series of characters that could be one character that it's sort of written from the vantage point of. Like a lot of songwriting where, you know, you're talking about a lot of different characters, the fact that it's the same voice singing, for me, sometimes sort of conflates all those characters together. So, the, you know, the brother that he's singing about in the state mm-hmm. I'm in and the various other kind of characters, for me, are all just sort of versions of a, a viewpoint, I suppose, or a, or a life. I find that interesting because when you find out about Stuart's sort of health when he was writing these songs, he talks about <clears throat> how actually these songs came out of his first forays into the world after getting kind of healthy again. So he's looking at the normal world going on and to him it kind of looks a bit exotic. And I, and I think all of these things, they all add up to this very unique viewpoint. It's a voice, sure. I think if you're a fan at any level of Ben and Sebastian, it's that viewpoint that sort of rings with you or, or at least it's something that you can participate in and walk with these characters, walk with this slightly lonely view of the world almost. I mean, I'm not a very outgoing kind of person. So yeah, I do, I do connect with a lot of his, a lot of the characters, but I also think there's a, a humble elegance to him not wanting to be the center of attention, so much so that even the characters he creates also don't want to be the center of attention either. <laughs> I think that's a, a really beautiful thing. But that's interesting that there's none of them, including him, or at least of all him, are afraid to kind of be a bit rude and sort of snotty. I mean, you think from, he's really oh, come at the on. very at the like maybe a little impolite at times. I think it's fair to say that there's this fierceness, and these are characters who are kind of coming to terms with what's going on around them. They're mm-hmm. facing up to it. They're squaring off with each other. It's self-aware. I don't think that it's overly confident. No, for me that's the the strength of it. You know, if it was. Oh yeah. If it, if was, it was all. If it was all, yeah, if it was just aw shucks the entire just, time, then that would be... We're all just skipping through a meadow. Yeah. That would be boring, wouldn't it? You know, even these are like fragile sort of indie types that are in these songs. They've come from gritty surroundings. They can deal with grittiness. That's not mm. a problem. No, you're right. I'll give you that. They have urban personas. They yeah. Are, they are... I've got incontrovertible evidence... <laughs> of the meanness in the You're going to convince me that he's snotty at some point. I was moved oh, to yeah. kick the crutches from my crippled friend. She was not impressed that I cured her on the Sabbath. Well, he's being mean, but he's cured her. It's in one fell swoop. He's kicked a crutch away, but also cured her. I thought it was she wasn't impressed because he cured her on the Sabbath. So it's like, like I... I put some wind in the sails of a very good friend and just said, like, go get it. You know, like, I'm going to kick the crutches from you. But isn't the truth of the matter that she was never crippled? That he's just, he is just showing the world that she's been faking it. Oh, that she had been faking it? Man, I'm starting to not like this band now. <laughs> this is a... This All right, is, no, no sell, sell, sell me this. Uh, this is an interpretation, which I've only just come to through looking okay. at the lyrics. That he's for whatever reason, kicked a crutch away from a crippled friend, and she's not fallen over, she's standing, therefore he's cured her, or isn't it possible that she was never crippled and she was using the crutch for sympathy and he's now exposed her? I never thought he exposed her. (laughs) But later on in the song, he says, I gave myself to sin, right? So it's being aware of good and bad and saying it's okay to go with the bad sometimes. 
that's how I, that's how I hear mm. some of this. Gosh, I really just cherry picked a couple of nouns and verbs that I think uh, kind of reaffirm my <laughs> well my, I think, my life view and kind of ascribe them to Bell I and think Sebastian. It doesn't hurt in my experience of it that the first line that I ever really took notice of in a Ben and Sebastian song is the opening line of a century of fakers, mm. which is later obviously. But there's some evil going on here. There are people going hungry every day. They've got nothing on their plates and you're filling your fat face with every different kind of cake. And if you ever go lardy or go lame, I will drop you straight away. I mean, this is strong. This is really strong, well-written observation. Written from a perspective that's mean on one side or the other, for sure. Hmm. Either the person who's being thoughtless in the way they eat or the person who's observing this other person and interpreting how they eat as something ugly, you know. There's some meanness going on here. I gotta go back and listen to some of this then. I mean, there's an acknowledgement of some injustice perhaps, or there is, I, you know, sometimes I err on this side and err on this side and I acknowledge that I'm sinful also. I always felt that the that line in particular, if you ever go lardy or go lame, I will drop you straight away, is something that you wouldn't hear in this kind of music. You, you, you rarely hear it in music at all, that kind of voice. And that's what totally drew me in straight away, is this kind of conversational put-down you don't normally hear in music. And whether or not it's written from a sympathetic or antagonistic point of view, and it could be either, and it's you more likely... Either way, it's, it's a, a bit of a snotty thing to say. Either way, it's an unlikely thing to put in a song. Hmm. Even write that differently, and, and you put that in a Black Flag song, and it's... <laughs> And it's something you'd expect to hear, but I doubt uh, Henry Rollins would, would use the word lardy. <laughs> this is the great strength for me of, of this era of Ben Sebastian, and arguably always, is the kind of darkness of some of the subject matter, the darkness of the choice of phrasing against the music, which is sometimes quite light and bouncy. Right? Hmm. So we talked a bit about A Century of Fakers. Technically, isn't on this record, but I'm prepared to bend the rule, even in the very first podcast, and have a piece of music which I think is relevant to the discussion. So this is probably one of my favorite Ben and Sebastian songs, A Century of Fakers. Some things to do 
For me, it's slightly less successful than the big batch of work that they put out around 97, 98, 99. There's nothing bad in that lot. So how, how um, now, how do you see it in terms of their canon? I would have to agree with you. I think that uh, if you're feeling sinister and uh, Boy with the Arab Strap are probably better records, yeah. but I just, I could go down to the record shop and buy those. Whereas Tiger Milk, I had to, we had to work pretty hard yeah. to, to hear that. And, and that has every bit to do with why it's such a nostalgic record mm. for me. I love it for that reason. And it's also chock full of good songs. But um, yeah, I guess looking back, 
it sounds it sounds like a band figuring out what they're going to do really well for yeah. the next couple of decades. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was a, a voyage of discovery, as, as we've heard, and, and that's possibly more the story of this record than, than any of their other, other records, the way it finally was pieced together for you. So you never had a copy of the original in your hands? Never. Not in, Well, I've never had a copy of the original in my hands, but I, <laughs> I guess when Jeepster did the reissue in 99... Did you have it on vinyl or CD? I got the vinyl for that when it okay. came out. And that was the first time I'd seen the artwork. Okay, that's interesting. I guess that was one of the issues. I remember taping a lot of records of Friends, and so you wouldn't have the artwork. Uh, quite often right. I made my own artwork to tapes. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, but you, you wouldn't have necessarily, for those records that were really dear to you, the sleeve to flip over and read all the liner notes to you had the songs that's kind of all you had maybe you had somebody else's handwriting the titles on the on the piece of card that came with the tape i think that's interesting because in a way we've we've returned to that now with the internet you don't necessarily have an object and more often than not you're maybe just streaming it from a website sure so that whole idea of of not owning it in its original form is is something that you know I never thought about that it's a it is in many ways returning to that era yeah I've never thought about it in those in those terms I mean to me the consumption of music has been so closely tied to the the progression of the technology that uh, that delivers it I I haven't really thought of it being cyclic like that but it, you know, it's quite I profound mean, for me it was important to have to have the tape and and, and to make uh, artwork for tape. I mean, I more often than not, if I was doing mixtapes for people, oh, I'd have to cover for it. Definitely, do a cover for you got, it. Yeah, you have to. The, the amount of time that I spent doing that uh, was that was one of my creative outlets. Sure, I remember getting off of work and thinking, okay, this is what I'm doing tonight. I got a couple mixtapes to make. I'm gonna yeah. go home. Of course, you're doing them in real time as well. Yeah. So. Gotta cue these up. Uh, a couple of them are gonna be off the other cassette deck, and a couple of these are gonna be off a record. So, you know, just kind of go back to back, keep it flowing. And oh yeah, I remember curating this and copying a mixtape, making a second copy of it. All it seemed not genuine. It seemed like oh well, if I just copy of this mixtape, I'm not really making it for that person. I'm making it for the first person and just yeah. copying a feeling. No, it has like to be a need, new one, right? Need, right, it needed to be... But every, every, you've got to tailor it to the person, you can't just... You do, uh, I mean, you did. <laughs> you do, yeah, well I suppose people do now, you know, have Mixcloud and, and various ways of sharing music and creating curated playlists, so again, that's, that's something that's, that's uh, still going strong. Maybe it's even stronger now for various reasons. The thing that interests me, which I did touch on, is this idea of him putting together this imaginary couple that was the starting point of the band. This is a direct quote from the, from the liner notes of the record, which you and I haven't seen. Hmm. Sebastian wrote all of his best songs in 1995. In fact, most of his best songs have the words 1995 in them. It bothered him a little. So that's a little bit of the, the setting the scene of who this sort of imaginary 
mythical person or persons that had created this music was, which we now know didn't last as a conceit for the band yeah. because by the time we heard Ben and Sebastian, even though we knew, you know, the name of the band is it sounds like two people. I don't ever remember thinking that Ben and Sebastian were a duo. I always knew it was a band. It's an interesting starting point. I don't remember point. if I ever if that was part of it for me. I don't. I guess I don't remember thinking it was a duo either because. Hmm. I, uh, yeah, I feel I, I don't like think I did. But that does make me. It makes me like him even more, <laughs> and it makes me. Uh, I definitely see myself in that point of view. I mean, mm. when we first started, we spent the summer recording and. We didn't want anybody to be the leader of the band. We wanted it to be a group and not a, a songwriter's, you know, staffing of a project. You know? yeah. So we created a fictional producer because we also thought we were a recording project. Like we never mm-hmm. planned on playing live. Mm-hmm. So the American, uh, American Analog American said Analog we said. created a fictional producer named Guy Fidelity that was going <laughs> to, and he, all of our demos that we sent out when we were looking for labels, which is, I guess, something you used to do. <laughs> they all were signed, Guy Fidelity, you know, like, hey, I'm, you know, my name is Guy, I represent these kids, uh, I produce their recordings, and so I have letters that are written back from labels that we liked at the time that were, that were, uh, Dear Mr. Written, Fidelity. Yeah, that were, well, Dear Guy. What that has in common is that it's a conceit, but it's it's quite a thin one, and you and you don't mind if people see through it. And I think that's, you know, it's almost a little joke that like you know you allow people to see through it just for the, because it kind of adds to the fun of it. Maybe I think that's what what maybe was going on here is that it's a thin conceit. It doesn't sound like a duo. There's plenty of people playing here, so yeah. it's a nice backstory. And doesn't it fit with the? It just sounds like a story in a book, which is, you know, what most of the songs sound like. Yes, and of course Ben and Sebastian were, from my, my knowledge of it, was a cartoon. I remember seeing the, the boy and the dog at some point. I don't know if they played reruns of, of this cartoon or if it, if it began as a book. That's probably why I knew straight away that it wasn't a duo, because I recognised the name Ben and Sebastian. I think. Oh, Belle was the dog. Uh, yes, Belle was the dog and Sebastian was the kid. Oh. So that was where the name came from. So I think... It already, if you know that cartoon, and I did, it already suggests an image, which the, the music does totally kind of flow from. Well, who could blame her if she wants? And I 
to follow day and back again. She doesn't want to sleep. Well, who could blame her if she sleeps? Oh, who could blame her if she sleeps? Oh, who could blame her if she sleeps? Back with yourself for company. Keep telling yourself you're young. I know it happens too. Mary Jo, no one can guess what you've been through. Now you've got love to burn. It's someone else's turn to go through hell, and you can see them come from fifty yards. Yeah, you can tell. It's someone else's turn to take a fall, and now you are the one who's strong enough to help them. The one who's strong enough to help them. The one who's strong enough to help them. The caravanet in Hull. Your life is never dull in your dreams. A feeling that it never seems to work the way you feel. Life is never dull in your head. A sorry tale of action and the men you left for. Women and the men you left for. Intrigue and the men you left for. Dead. Life is never dull in your dreams. A feeling that it never works out. Life is never dull in your dreams. A sorry tale of action and the men you left for, women and the men you left for, intrigue and the men you left for dead. The men you left for dead. Do you think you would feel the same about this record if you'd been able to go into a shop and buy it? Hmm. Is the story of this record as much about its distance and intangibility and the way that you, that you pieced it together? Is that really the story of this of th- this record? I think that's the whole question: is is why is this album so precious to me? Is it because of what it is, or is it because of or how hard I had to work to get it? And I to assemble it. I mean, it's good, but I, I you know, if I. Um, had heard If You're Feeling Sinister, and then when I went to the record shop to buy it, uh, saw that they also had another one there, and I just mm. bought them both. You know, would it, would it be such a special experience to me? And I guess I'd have to say definitely no. Mm. But that's, you know, also what this is about to some degree is, you know, it's this is uh, the 90s. This is how we discovered this music, is, right? Yeah, this is... It wasn't an easy, you know, it wasn't a click away. It was, there was a story behind getting into those records or quite often you had to just take a leap of faith and try stuff how else would you know what it sounded like you had mm-hmm. to buy it no it's it, yeah it's very true um, but I think that's that's a great way to look at it is music isn't just about what the music is it's about how you find it and what's the journey yeah it's I say this often you know uh, if you want to write a great song, just study and learn what great songs sound like. If you want to write someone's favorite song, then 
move to Des Moines and sit on the edge of your bed and just be very patient yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and let them find you. Yeah. Great. Okay. Well, I've been talking with Andrew Kenny. Uh, thanks Kenny for sharing your time and your recollections of this sure. record. It's been, it's been enjoyable. Thank you for having me, Gordon. And I hope there'll be more of these. So keep tuned as they used to say.